Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my Happy New Year to the three Happy New Years you've already had. So, Happy New Year Fest, isn't it, really? Uh, and welcome uh, to those uh, watching virtually, whether on the live stream or maybe catching up later. Now, as we know, New Year, new opportunities, new school term, hooray! I don't know. Um, new beginnings, new resolutions for some of us, maybe. And of course, a new church teaching series. And over the next uh, few weeks, um, as has been explained already, we're, we're looking at this theme here we are to worship. And my aim this morning is really to answer a simple question What is worship? What is worship? But first, a story. Because we like stories, don't we? The late 1990s, a large, successful, popular, charismatic church was struggling with its worship. They felt that there was something missing, that they'd in some sense lost their way. And so the pastor did something very radical. For a season, he said, let's have no PA, let's have no band, let's just come with our voices. Now, initially, his congregation found that quite uncomfortable. What do we do? Who's leading? How does it work? And he would ask them, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as you're offering to God. Well, after some embarrassing silences and various meetings, eventually people learned to kind of break out into a cappella songs of worship and praise and heartfelt prayers and started to encounter God in a fresh way. And out of that time, a new song was born which eventually they would sing again with their full band and PA and so on and so forth, and which we have sung this morning. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. So as we start this new series this morning, I want us to get back to the heart of worship. What is it all about? And I want to start by saying what worship is not, because we often get a better grasp of what something is when we understand what it's not. And the first thing I'd want to say is that worship is not about feeling. Now, feeling, emotions will be involved. They must be. God has made us emotional be <coughs> beings. And if we leave our emotions behind when we worship, then we're not bringing him everything. But the level of our emotions is not an indicator of the degree of our worship. Pete Gregg has written in How to Hear God today, when someone refers to a good time of worship, we know perfectly well they're referring to an emotional time of singing. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? 
having a warm, cosy feeling inside while singing a song is not necessarily worship. In fact, you can feel flat and worship. You can feel angry and worship. You can feel low and worship. Calvin's already mentioned that the Psalms are full of, uh, the book of Psalms is full of uh, Psalms of lament. Worshippers who just weren't feeling it. They were cross or sad or low, all sorts of emotions. But worship is a choice before worship is a feeling. Worship is an act which develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God which is expressed in an act of worship. So if you're not feeling it, if you are out of sorts in some way, then you're still called to worship. You mustn't let what is wrong with you stop you worshipping what is right with God. So firstly, it's not about feelings. And then secondly, it's not about form or styles. This uh, article appeared um, in an American newspaper objecting to some of the new trends in worship. There are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many new songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scam, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. That was written in 1723. <laughs> in opposition to Isaac Watts, who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Which just goes to show that our issues with form or style aren't new. So corporate worship can take many forms. And according to your personal preferences, it can be too formal or too informal, too structured or too free-flowing, too theologically heavy or too fluffy, too loud or too quiet. Some of you are thinking, surely, no, surely nobody believes it's too quiet. Some of you are thinking, surely nobody believes it's too loud. Personal preferences. According to your personal preferences, you may love or dislike certain songs or doing actions during songs. Where would you place your full stop in this phrase? The children are happy because Calvin sings action songs. Some people sit at the back of the church. <laughs> Penny's starting to drop. Would you say the children are happy? Because Calvin sings action songs, some people sit at the back of the church. <laughs> or would you say the children are happy because Calvin sings action songs? Some people sit at the back of the church. 
<laughs> I wasn't looking for a response, but thank you. <laughs> Language is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Which is my excuse for a totally random digression and a brief safety announcement, actually. Please don't play ball games in the welcome area. You may hit Andy. <laughs> Just letting that one sink in. It's New Year, I know, it's all a bit... <laughs> How do we get through this first service? But there we go. Anyway, that's a total digression. I owned up to it, so we're good. What, what I was doing was making a point about worship and form, saying that worship is not about style. Now, like emotion, form is important. It has its place. Forms of worship should provide two things, channels for the mind to apprehend the truth of God's reality and channels for the heart to respond to the beauty of that truth. That is, forms to ignite the affections with biblical truth and forms to express the affections with biblical passion. Form is important, but we shouldn't make our personal preferences the benchmark for acceptable worship. So, what is worship if it's not about feeling and it's not about form? What is it about? So let's begin to define worship with the help of four words from the Bible, two from the Old Testament and two from the New. First, from, first two from the Old Testament, or bad. God said to Pharaoh, who had enslaved the Israelites, let my people go so that they may worship, or bad, worship me in the wilderness. And the word means to minister, to serve, even to work. And it suggests something about our relationship with God. It is not a relationship of equals. And it tells us that worship is more than just singing, more than just a song, but active service, which is a point we'll come back to later. A different word was used when Abraham led his son up Mount Moriah and told his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Shokar. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. This word means to bow down or to prostrate oneself. A word that speaks of humility and self-abasement. A recognition of how great God is in comparison to us, how small we are in comparison to him. <clears throat> Into the New Testament, we have Sabomai, which means to worship, be devout, be God-fearing, uh, even to feel dread towards. So Jesus criticized the Pharisees by quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. Their worship, their sabomai, was worthless because instead of just following their petty rules, instead of worrying what other people thought about them, they should have feared God. Sabomai. And this word reminds us that there's no place for flippancy of worship. 
and that our worship shouldn't be shaped by what other people think of us. And lastly, the most commonly used word in the New Testament for worship, proskuneo, which means to worship, to pay homage, to show reverence, to kneel down, to kiss. And its first occurrence is in Matthew chapter 2, on the lips of the Magi, who ask Herod, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And this word implies a posture of submission and of reverence. The reverence that you owe to royalty. Actually, the word may be derived from the idea of a dog licking its master's hand because the Greek for dog is kuon. So if you own an obedient dog that adores you, that image might help. If your dog won't do a word that you say, then just put that image out of your mind. But four words <coughs> give us a great start to understanding what worship is. But there's more to say. Because in this series, we're only interested in Christian worship. Now, one of the things that struck me during the World Cup final last month was the religious nature of some of the language that was used. BBC pundit Rio Ferdinand repeatedly said he considered himself blessed to have been in Qatar to witness Messi's magic. But worship directed to anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. And God said in the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So our worship, Christian worship, is Godward, directed to God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next, our worship is a response to who God is and to what he has done. Luke, in his gospel, tells this story of a woman who'd lived a sinful life, and she came to where Jesus was eating. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, wetting his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing them and pouring her alabaster jar of perfume on them. And Jesus tells his host, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So Jesus commends this woman for her great love in response to Jesus' great forgiveness. And worship can also be in response to what God has made. Alistair McGrath writes, It is part of the purpose of the Creator that we should hear the music of the cosmos and through loving its harmonies come to love their composer. I love that. Worship is a response to who God is and to what God has done. Then worship is costly. We've sung, haven't we? I'll bring you more than a, than a song. The story about the sinful woman teaches us another aspect of about another aspect about worship. 
this costiness idea. On one occasion, King David wanted to build an altar to the Lord at a certain place, and the owner of that place offered the place to the king free of charge. But David said, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Worship is a sacrifice. To the Christians in Rome, Paul wrote, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, there it is, there's the response element again, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And there is a risk that we become consumers of a service rather than the contents of a sacrifice. There is a risk that we turn up at church or our small group or in some other setting to get something out of it, like you would a concert or a movie. But we shouldn't be the consumers of a service. We should be the sacrifice. And that will cost us. It might cost us financially. It might cost us emotionally. It can be hard to worship when you're grieving or angry or depressed. It might cost you relationally. If you prioritise this, perhaps, uh, over something else. It might cost you time that's precious to you. It might cost you physically. Just being here, you might be in pain but you've prioritised coming to worship. You've, you've said the cost is worth it. Worship is costly. And one more. Worship is about presence. Eugene Peterson again described worship as the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Or again, as we've sung, it's all about you, Jesus, not about me. It's not about my issues when I come to worship you. It's about you, Jesus, all about you. We must be fully present to worship. And our series title actually suggests this. Here we are to worship. So we're not in our minds on the golf course or making Sunday lunch, or writing out Monday's to-do list, or wherever we might otherwise be, we should be as present in our minds as we are in our bodies. And that means turning the spotlight away from ourselves and our business and towards God. Well, let's bring some of these threads together. I'm not putting this forward as the ultimate definition of worship, far from it. There are better definitions out there, and over the coming weeks we will learn additional things. But it's a, it's a starting point uh, that captures, I think, much of the essence of worship. So for now, worship is a humble, reverent, costly response to who God is and to what he has done. An act through which we prioritise him over our feelings and preferences by giving him our attention and praise. 
as I say, I'm sure we can improve uh, on that definition. But really getting the definition right isn't the important thing, is it? What matters more is actually growing in worshippers. And so if over the course of the coming weeks and months we become more humble in our worship and more reverent in our worship and more sacrificial in our worship and so forth, then that's what really matters more than pinning down a definition. Well, there is one more thing I want to say before I close, because I have intentionally confined my definition of worship to this corporate act of coming together to bring God praise. But worship is about the whole of our lives. We say that often here at this church. It's not just about 30 minutes on a Sunday. So when we talk about worship over the coming weeks and we focus on what happens on Sundays and in other Christian gatherings, please don't imagine that we've forgotten the broader meaning. 30 minutes of devotion on Sunday is no substitute for living humbly with God throughout the week. And perhaps no one has put it more strongly than Amos, who in chapter 5 of his prophecy writes this. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What God is saying is that, you know, if... If, if all your worship is, is just 30 minutes on a Sunday, then it's worthless. It's worse than worthless. One uh, standout singer-songwriter of our time, still going strong at the age of 72, has put it a little bit more prosaically. The measure of the true worshipper that the Father seeks is not the length of his historical tradition or the height of his hands above his head, but the depths of love in his heart for the Father. You can't confine that love to a Sunday service. It will express itself on Monday in the office, Tuesday in the supermarket queue, Wednesday in that difficult family conversation, Thursday bent over the textbook, Friday with the neighbour, Saturday at the football match. In all sorts of different contexts, that love will come out. So although I hope we all grow and are blessed on these coming Sundays as we explore here we are to worship, I hope too that we will also take away a here I am to worship attitude into our everyday lives. Amen. Calvin.